You're listening to Free Association. My guest today, Alan Licht, a writer, musician, curator based in New York City, known for his solo guitar work, bands Run On, Love Child, the experimental group Text of Light, and also known for his writing for Wire Magazine, Bomb Magazine, and author of several books, including his new book, Common Tones, Selected Interviews with Artists and Musicians, over a 25-year period. This is his solo guitar rendition of the Van Halen piece, Jump. Stay with us for my conversation with Alan Licht. You're listening to Free Association right here on WZBC. Thank you. 
So I was I was familiar with your. I've read a bunch of your work in Wire, and um, oh yeah, the the one I really loved was your interview with Michael Gira somewhere around two thousand three or two thousand four. Oh, yeah. I thought that was so one of the great interviews I've read with him. And I'm just curious when you when you put this book together, uh, what are these? Are these interviews that didn't make it in the magazines or or were they sort of did they come out of that or how, I'm just kind of curious how you selected this group of Yeah, these people. were these were all basically Q&A interviews I did for the most part in person and they were you know they were basically conducted for the purposes of writing a profile of the person. Uh, you know, in Michael's case we did that one uh, on email, actually, he oh, didn't want to do. He didn't okay. want to do a face-to-face interview, even though we knew each other like s- slightly. Yeah. Uh, he, he, but I think he was upstate at that point, and he didn't want to do it by phone, and so on and so right, forth. Right. And and I personally sometimes like to do prefer to do email interviews rather than phone interviews or in-person interviews. So I right. completely understood that. Uh, so in a case like that, there was no interview to really transcribe anything that. Pretty much, I used probably everything that he sent to me <laughs> right. in answering the questions. It wasn't like a conversation the way a lot of the the ones in the book are. But you know, like with the example of the Matthew Barney one, which was for uh, an article in Sight and Sound, which is a film magazine in Britain, and that was like a one page article, and I used maybe two or three short quotes. So that was kind of that was an example of what it was. It was like you know these interviews that were had appeared in print in one form or another, but they had not, for the most part, appeared as Q&A interviews. I mean, the exceptions to that are some of the things that appeared in Bomb Magazine originally, like Tony Ausler and uh, Reese Chatham and Alessandra Navaga. But in every case, I think they're, they're a different edit than what appeared in the magazine. I mean, usually longer, especially in Alexandra's, Alessandra's uh, case, it was significantly longer than it was uh, it was actually online. It wasn't even in the magazine. I think that was true of Reese also. It was like okay. they were things that appeared online and um, they're just edited differently than um, than they were in the magazine. Right. So you're, what we're seeing here is is live Q&A that was, that was you transcribed by hand or using like a, a voice of recognition or? No, I did it. I did it all myself. I, yeah. I've not had great experience with, with having a, a machine try to transcribe it. I just, it, right. it just ends up being gibberish. I have to go back and see what it was. It's more trouble than it's worth. Right. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. You and I have this, this commonality where we're both musicians and we both interview people. And I love the, um, the interviews are so in depth because you're a musician and you know, so many of these people, or you worked with, other musicians that they worked with. Um, I'm thinking of in particular of the, the, the Lou Reed interview. And I always right. thought with Lou, with Lou Reed, I always thought, you know, if I was going to interview him, if you ever heard the New York minute with Hal Wilner, or, you know, he's a music fanatic, you know, he loves, he <laughs> loves music. And he like so many of his interviews, just like you said in the book are, are just these sort of, mindless talking about his sexuality or drug use or whatever and you yeah. and there's it's, it's no wonder he's crabby right i mean <laughs> i always thought if i was going to interview him the first thing i would mention is robert wilson you know, he's a huge fan of robert wilson i love einstein on the beach and the raven has that component you know the raven is such a great 
um, subject because there's so many facets to that record. Um, but the, your interview with him, I think, is by way and above all the other interviews because he, <laughs> oh, you, you, not only did you, I think you immediately, the sense I got, and I'm kind of curious to see what you, because I'm curious to see what you, th the sense I got was that you immediately said, oh, I worked with Ulrich. And immediately the sense I got from reading was like, he just let his guard down and said, I think you, know, that's, you know, you're one of, he's one of us and we can talk music. Right. Yeah. yeah. I think that's, that's probably pretty accurate. I think that was fairly early in the interview. I mean, it just came up because we were talking about right. that, um, that transcription of metal machine music that Ulrich right. did. Right. And, um, but yeah, it just kind of came up then and i kind of dropped a couple of other things you know saying that i had metal machine music in quad like the quad <laughs> right. yeah uh, right. release great. of that which you know he barely even had a copy of right. that and you know just other things like the velvet underground uh, kind of mentioning some obscure velvet underground track but yeah i mean the fact that we had the commonality of playing with someone I, i'm sure that's not something that he encountered with an interviewer yeah anytime exactly before. Right, right i mean you know what you're saying about mo you know most people who would interview him i mean you know most music journalists in general are either, you know, in the best case scenario with some of the original rock critics, they were kind of lapsed beatnik novelists or aspiring right. beatnik novelists who, or aspiring science fiction novelists even, because a lot of those guys were super into science fiction, like Paul Williams and Lenny Kay was actually a big science fiction fantasy oh, like, person. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Um, you know, in the best case scenario, there are these kind of like literary types who kind of like, you know, sort of like uh, were sort of punk enough to sort of, you know, forget about trying to be an English teacher or forget about trying to be a, a literary figure in that way. And they just sort of like right. got caught up in this obsession with rock music, which was sort of, you know, and they kind of recognized it was in its peak period then. And they knew that that's where the action was. But then as it got further and further along, it was just people who like, were kind of record geeks who couldn't play an instrument. So then, <laughs> and they're kind of like not socially adept anyway. So then, it, right. you know, it just becomes, you know, or they're just celebrity journalists, you know, people just want to hang around with celebrities. Yeah. Right. That's uh, which, yeah. yeah, which I am not. Um, so that's part of it. And also Lou Reed, I'm sure never bought a record in his life based on an interview <laughs> right. with the artist, you know, it's, it's something that's sort of foreign to him, you know, it's his whole, Little music was probably formed by you know what he heard on the radio or you know or maybe what you know he heard somewhere else. It, it certainly wasn't based on like a music press. No. So way. he's sort right. of a, he's sort of, yeah. I mean, he's sort of a generation that's removed from that. Right. Yeah. I mean that that was the sense I got was that uh, you know he plus, I think also plus you the fact that you had gone deep. I want to play people this track because i didn't know mel you mentioned melody laughter i'd never heard of that mm -hmm. when i when i uh when i read that i want to play pe uh, people just a, a it's a long oh, yeah. it's a long piece <laughs> but maybe you can give a little context of this is this a live um yeah recording i mean or? this is this is actually you know it's 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 a very precious recording because it's one of the very few examples of the exploding plastic inevitable which if people know is kind of when the velvet underground uh, was taken under the wing of Andy Warhol. He organized this whole multimedia uh, show around them where they would he would be showing some of his films and the Velvets would be on stage and they would play their set, but then kind of uh, to begin with, they would do this long kind of instrumental 
jam. And, um, and it goes on for like a half hour. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, when I first heard this in the mid eighties, I was a Sonic Youth fan and I was just like, Oh my God, this is, this is Sonic Youth before right. Sonic Youth exactly, or like yeah. Sonic Youth or the midsection of Sonic Youth songs or something like that. Or Sister Ray is, you know, or actually European Sun to be more accurate is sort of like a distillation of this. They do the, like the, you know, like a few bars of a, a tune at the beginning and then the rest of the, the piece where it's instrumental and just kind of like going crazy is, is really kind of like comes out of this whole um, uh, practice that they had of, of doing these long improvisations right. during the exploding classic inevitable period. So this was originally a bootleg that came out, I think around 1980. And interestingly enough, it was recorded by this guy named Doug Snyder who in Ohio and I guess Cleveland or Columbus, I guess Columbus, Ohio. And he later moved to New York and was in a band called Sick Dick and the Volkswagens, oh, yeah. which okay. in turn sort of spawned Borba de Magus. Oh, interesting. And he played a Rickenbacker guitar, which he then sold to the guitarist of Borba de Magus, which was Donald Miller. Donald Miller, right. And it's again, this is sort of like it all kind of comes full circle. Donald was someone that I kind of met and interviewed, although he's not in this book, uh, when I was uh, a fair, still a fairly young man. And Donald is the one who turned me on to Henry Flint's cassette, You Are My Ever Loving. And of course, there's an interview with Henry in the book, uh, right? in the yeah. book where we right. talk about that cassette. And my, you know, a lot of my interest in Henry comes from hearing that cassette, uh, courtesy of Donald Miller. Right. Yeah, let's listen to this, this a little bit of this track.
selections from Melody Laughter, Velvet Underground piece. Alan Licht is here. We're talking about his new book, Common Tones. You know, we were talking about your interview with, with Lou Reed, and, and um, uh, I'm curious if you saw the, um, the documentary, the Todd Haynes documentary. Yeah, I, I did. Re- I really liked it. What did, what, did you, yeah. what did you think? Yeah, so did I. I mean, I kind of went into it um, uh, sort of not skeptical, but just not knowing what to expect because I already yeah. kind of know the story, yeah, chapter me too. and verse. Right. And, um, and I was, you know, pleasantly surprised. I thought, you know, he, he got a lot of mileage out of, you know, for a band that there's basically hardly any performance footage of. Right. He got a lot of mileage out of the kind of, um, you know, filmic material that he had at his disposal. And even the, the thing of just, you know, showing the screen tests of John and Lou and while they kind of had like this kind of audio telling their kind of like coming of age, respective coming of age stories, it kind of sets you up for the kind of sustained viola tones that, that go through heroin or Venus and furs, you know, there's like right. just focusing on this one thing. It's like, all this other stuff is going on. There's this, there's this kind of counterpoint, which is static. Right. And it's, you know, or like, uh, like a pedal point would be in classical music. Right. Um, you know, a lot of the split screen stuff I think is coming out of Chelsea girls and funnily enough about 30 some odd years ago, I went up to the Whitney museum in New York to see a screening of Chelsea girls and it was sold out and someone else who was at that sold out screening was also turned away was Todd Haynes. Oh, is that right? And I recognized Todd (laughs) because he had come to my college and he showed superstar, the Karen Carpenter. Oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah. His first real movie. Yeah. Yeah. Which is a short film. And and it's, you know, where he's telling the Karen Carpenter story using Barbie dolls and it's a brilliant film. And, uh, and he was actually sort of the friend of a relative of one of my friends, at college and that's how we got him to come and uh and show the film and speak that's wow. how we even knew about it because it was sort of like like a you know kind of an inside connection there right um but yeah and you know it takes you know what i like about it is it takes an art historical uh view of the velvet underground rather than a rock right no rock view. critics you no sitting around critics. talking about history of rock and all that and when they become more of a rock band or, or like or they're kind of you know kind of marketed more as a rock band and and kind of our um their trajectory becomes much more that of a, a standard rock band where they they're just kind of going around playing you know the rock club circuit of the day uh that's kind of where the story does, doesn't quite totally end but it, they're really yeah. winding it down at that point because right it's sort of, it doesn't really serve their purpose anymore. It's like, you know, they're kind of saying that there was this whole kind of confluence of underground uh, film and, and the kind of incipient pop art mute uh, scene and avant-garde music like Lamont right. Young and who, you know, John Cale played with and Tony Conrad, who was also involved. And they could have made, I think even a bit of uh, a stronger point about some of that where, you know, they don't really mention that Walter De Maria was, I mean, or they barely mention. I think that Walter De Maria was the drummer in the primitives when, who then became like a very successful land oh, right, right. artist. <clears throat> and they don't mention that Angus McLeese was involved with the poetry scene and with Lamont Young so much. 
and he was really the original drummer of oh, that's the Velvet right. Underground before right. Maureen. Um, and so there's a few other, I think they could have like even strengthened the case even more. And they, they don't even say that, you know, um, the di a big difference in between the two kind of periods of the Velvet Underground is at first they were managed by Andy Warhol, who of course is like an artist. An he's art, not a, not show a manager business. at all, right? He's not a show business <laughs> manager. He's yeah. not a rock band manager. He's right. like, he made the Velvet Underground was like a ready-made for him, right. it was like a, this already assembled rock band that Barbara Rubin found right. playing yeah. in the village. And then after him, they were managed by this guy named Steve Sesnick. Steve Sesnick is never even mentioned in the film, but Steve Sesnick is the one who brings Doug Ewell into the band. He's the one who kind of sends him around on tour. Right. He's the one, and he's the one who ultimately is sort of like kind of becomes this, you know, kind of drives this wedge between Lou and um, I think Doug Ewell, which is kind of oh, why I didn't, Lou, I didn't know Lou, Reed, mm. Lou Reed leaves the Velvet Underground at, at the end of the Max's Kansas right. City residency, right. you know. I mean, that's, I mean, it's, people kind of complain that, you know, Doug Ewell is kind of like given short shrift in the movie. Um, but, you know, if it's, it's, I think it's more that the the managerial focus changed, which is, <laughs> is the thing that's, that's could have been expanded on it i think a bit more just to make again just to make it very clear like what the difference was where between... that divide was right yeah yeah see i, I didn't because, know that i didn't know what you just described yeah. I, didn't, I didn't know that's that split that's interesting and the thing is once john kale is out it's it's basically the beginning of lou reed's solo career you know he's right. still got that's true this interesting band in place to play his songs but it's not the same thing they're not getting reworked to the extent they are when John Cale was in the band. Like if you know those early demos that I think are on the box set of All Tomorrow's Parties and I think maybe Venus and Furs is on there too. And it's um, originally those songs, they're almost like hootenanny, like kind of folky, like yeah. up-tempo right. things. And John Cale is the one who's saying like, gotta slow all this down. You know, yeah. All Tomorrow's Parties like And then Cale's the one going like, boom. Boom, you know, just right, slow it right. Down. There was this tension. First too, yeah. yeah, I got Lou. It seemed like John Cale was pushing it more toward the avant-garde, and Lou was trying to push it more toward toward songs. But maybe I'm maybe I'm simplifying I think it's, it. Well, but, um, it's John was bringing in the influence of playing with Lamont Young. Right. You know, it's like the slowest music magic. <laughs> yeah. It's just it's right. just drone. It's just solid drone. Yeah. Um, and so it's not going to be that, but it that's sort of like you know when you're at that stage of the game you're trying to to do something that no other band is doing because there's a premium put on like having a new sound you know what's the new sound right right um without being like too far off uh the grid it still has to have a beat it still has to be you know right. whatever but um that sort of you know like john kale went to england he picked up like the who singles and they're got feedback on them and he's telling Lou like we better hurry up because these guys are like beating us to the punch <laughs> and the yard you know the yard birds too i mean this is all you know forget the who and the yard birds are have got feedback and even the beatles i guess on i feel fine have all got feedback on records in 1965 and that's when right. the velvet underground are just starting to do their demos so they're like you know they've they're, you know that's what the competition is and you, you, you know, think that they out do them interesting so you think that they they saw the writing on the wall and and we're moving toward that 
sort of purposefully. Yeah. You know, it's yeah. like, that's, that's who they, yeah. that's who they were competing with at right. first. And then, you know, the record didn't sell. So it was just like, well, the, the, you know, someone figures like, well, we got to take a different angle, yeah. you know, it's, right. you know, again, like that's show business. Right. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, I thought Melody Laughter was, it was, it was such a great um, title drop in the interview because it was like, you know, the, the, the documentary talks about early Velvet Underground and the experimental nature of Velvet Underground. And not a lot of people have heard that track. I mean, they were really yeah. out there. I mean, that was a, that was a free improvised, you know, performance. I mean, what I'm hearing. I mean, so, you know, people think of Velvet Underground, they think of the songs and they think, yeah, there's some drones that John Cale put down. Um, but yeah. the documentary really frames it in Lamont Young, the Dream Syndicate and all that, you know, everything that sort of the foundation of it, I thought was really, really right. interesting. And, yeah. and, you know, Lou was a big Ornette Coleman fan oh, too. Sure, he said right. he used, you know, he said, I think right. he says in there, he used to, cause he Ornette plays on the Raven and he says, you know, right. he used to, he couldn't afford to get into the five spot. He would stand on the, the, uh, outside and, and just kind of like, listen, you know, from what he could hear you right. know, outside the club. So that's, that's part of where the improvisation comes in. And he liked Cecil Taylor also. He liked a lot of this free jazz stuff. That's true. I didn't think about that. You know, I, I knew that he, the only reason I knew he was an Ornette fan before I read your book was, was the, the, the New York minute. I'll play a little bit of it here, but they always used to start with, with lonely woman, you know, he and how oh, yeah. used to start with, with that. Yeah. And he loves that song. I think he mentioned that in your interview too. Right, right, yeah. right. by on the West Side Highway. Um, New York Shuffle. Where were you now, Wilner? It's a new year, but that might not mean anything because we don't know when this is airing. <laughs> anyway, it is a new year. Correct? For, for sure. It is. As of now, we're almost in the second week of the new year, Hal. And... We and are here we are with Ornette, looking out on the river. We have a beautiful hypnotic sound today. Anyway, we'll uh, obviously we're still hungover from there, so uh, we're going to start with some music, right? We'll, uh, are you ready? Those two guys were such such so tight, you know. Uh, Hal and Hal and Lou. Yeah. yeah, actually, you know, I did a, I later did a Invisible Jukebox with Lou for the Wire, and I played him, I think Masada, yeah. the John Zorn thing, oh, wow. and, okay. and yeah. you know, he guessed that it was Zorn. He's like, he's like, you always hear that hint of Ornette in there when John's yeah. playing saxophone. Right. Wow. Um, so yeah, and and you know, he just loved having Ornette. He talked about how Ornette, you know, that's I think the track was called Guilty on the Raven that Ornette played on. And uh, he talked about how Ornette did like seven takes and he played it completely differently every time. He's like, this one I'm playing with the drums, this one I'm playing with the, the bass, this one I'm playing with the guitar, this one yeah. I'm playing, you know, this way, that way. It's like, you know, take your pick. And Lou was just like, you could have used any of them. And he's like, and there was one <laughs> where he just plays full out, you know, like, like hair raising, you know, 
screeching he didn't use stuff that like clear yeah, yeah they, right. <laughs> they were tempted to use that i think they 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 chose something else i'd end. love to hear that <laughs> yeah i point. mean i think he i think he posted every take on his website oh wow point. i never heard that okay yeah and mike still that. be up there yeah. right interesting but you know i mean but that also came up i mean it was, he was on the record but then i kind of pointed out that don cherry was on the bells and i think and then that got him onto the whole topic of don cherry and don I guess played with the band a few times, like in that period and like mid to late seventies. And, you know, Lou was talking about the track, the bells, which was one of his favorite tracks. And then he yeah. was like, you know, come to think of it, the, the opening of the track, the bells is a lot like the opening of the whole Raven album, which is like an overture. And he was like, dum, dum, dum. it's like, they both kind of do the same right. thing. So I had sort of like gotten him to realize this sort of like recurring pattern his own work which is one of the things i kind of love to try to point out to people is like to to like how they're operating unconsciously as opposed to consciously and sometimes i'll say it and they'll be like huh i never thought of that or i don't know what you're talking about or like you know (laughs) you know it's like you know there's it's a variety of responses to it but i do think that there's something there and I, i i tend to really like artists who i think are uh operating unconsciously as much as they're operating consciously yeah let, let's play this piece the bells i got this 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 is another piece i wasn't familiar uh, good. with until you brought it up yeah see there you go right yeah the opening Lou Reed, The Bells. Alan Licht is here. We're talking about his book, Common Tones. He interviews Lou Reed. He's one of the interviews. You talked about um, some of the great um, interview interview strategies that you had. And I wanted to talk about Christian Marclay because he's one of my favorite mm-hmm. favorite musicians. Um, what's interesting about about the, the interview is you mentioned something about a, a record about records and a record, record without a cover. And I remember that, right. that, show, that show Night Music. Oh, yeah. um, and and Christian Marclay was on there and he had all and that's the first time I'd seen him and I was just blown away I couldn't believe uh what I was what I was seeing and and I want to play people a track from um one of my favorite records called more encores um oh, which yeah. is kind of like mm-hmm. a collage of um Serge Gainsbourg <clears throat> and, and Jane Birkin uh pieces let me just play a little bit of this for people if they don't so he's basically taking all these records and sort of making a collage of them into one one piece mm-hmm. 
he combines all those it, it's it's not it doesn't it feels so uh musical the way he combines all the different and, and puts that collage together um but I, I what's great about the interview is at one point you ask him about a record about records and i was thinking about michael snow who um is also a struggle and he even mentions michael snow it's funny because i read i was reading your your question and i immediately thought oh a record about records is sort of like how Michael Snow is is making you aware of the medium, aware of the film. Right, it's like structuralist you know, film. Structuralist film, and I and then and then Christian Marclay mentions Michael Snow, and I just thought, my God, I mean, that's mind blowing to me that maybe Christian Marclay was influenced by Michael Snow's work in the film medium. You know, and of course, Michael Snow is also interviewed in your book. So there's all these sort of like happy right. accidents, <laughs> you right. know, that, that are happening. Right. Um, I mean, uh, to give us a little bit of context, I, I interviewed Michael before I interviewed Christian. I interviewed Michael in late 1999. And that interview with Christian, I think, is er very early 2003. And I sort of I knew I think I knew Christian a little bit uh, from working at Tonic before I did the interview, but, but what made Christian contact me and ask him, because that interview was done for a catalog of a big retrospective of Christians in uh, the Hammering Museum in LA. I and it, I wrote an, a piece in the catalog about Christian's involvement with music, like Christian, the musician, right? As right. opposed to Christian, the visual artist. And um, so that's what that interview was for. And I used quite a lot of, quotes from him in that article but of course again it wasn't the full conversation which you know which i had probably never i don't know if i'd ever transcribed it fully i had to go back to the cassette and right and do it um but you, christian in turn said that he had asked he had thought of me to do it because he'd seen an article i'd done on yasin Tone in the wire and yes, you know yasin Tone was kind of a he was kind of associated with fluxus in japan and he was doing this stuff with skipping CDs. So oh, he was yeah, sort of like right. a almost like a digital Christian in a way. Right. It, you know, <laughs> just to the extent that Christian stuff is sometimes about skipping records or scratching records. Right. Um, and yeah, um, for sure, I, I'm sure I, I encountered probably record without a cover just slightly before I'd seen Michael's Wavelength film, which is the, his best known film right. where it's like this continuous zoom down from one end of a loft to the other 
uh, and it kind of it kind of it's the whole focus of the the, the film is on the zoom itself, right? It's zoom not about, itself, there's not a plot. There's no narrative. Not, yeah. yeah <laughs> right. And there's not abstract imagery kind of like going around. It's, it's completely, it is what it is. It's like, I mean, there's, there's a little bit of kind of staged action in there just to kind of break things up. But, um, uh, yeah, I so love yeah, your, your intro. You, you basically say at a certain point when you're watching it, you realize, Oh, I can just enjoy the process and not have to worry about right. what kind of plot points are happening. Right. <laughs> no, but that it was, was also great... that, especially the idea that you sort of like, you knew what the conclusion was going to be and it didn't matter that you knew what, what it was. It was sort of like, it was just like this process, but I'd already, I think by that point I'd already uh, absorbed the process music of Steve Reich, for example, like piano phase and things right. like that. So I was, I was already a little bit familiar with, that whole uh, aesthetic, the concept of it, even if it wasn't in the film yeah. medium, you would, you right. Would I hadn't seen a movie it. like that. And it's <clears> right. just like, Oh, okay. There's, there's actually a cinema that, that, that does this too. Yeah. Yeah. When I, when I first moved, so I, I'm in Boston. When I first moved here in one I got into the, like you said in the book, I, I, I love experimental music. Maybe I'd be interested in experimental film, in experimental mm. film. So yeah. I got in, there was an experimental film collective here every week they would show movies and it would be like Maya Darren and, Stan Brakhage right. and um, Peter Tchaikovsky, this Austrian filmmaker, and um, Michael mm -hmm. Snow, and um, and Ken Jacobs, and 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 eventually I I realized you know there is a lot of overlap you know between the between the experimental music and the experimental film, and that's where I think the book is so interesting because it it kind of you know you're not saying well here are these film inter filmmaker interviews over here and here are these musician and it's sort of all the filmmakers yeah. are mentioning musicians and musicians <laughs> right. are mentioning filmmakers. It's all sort of all one. Yeah. Well, I mean, Michael, thing, Michael's right. sort of the supreme example of that because he started off as a jazz pianist and then right. he actually became yeah. an avant-garde jazz pianist and then actually trumpet player as well. Oh, wow. Um, okay. You know, like New York, the movie New York Eye and Ear Control has the soundtrack is Albert Eiler. Albert Eiler, right. And Don Cherry, actually, and, and but mostly Albert Eiler's group. And Michaels yeah. kind of chose them and kind of was the one kind of saying, like, forget about playing ahead, just just go straight into the improvisation. So he, in a way, he's, he's this kind of like godfather of free improvisation from that kind of instruction for that, right. the soundtrack to that movie. And then, you know, Michael has had his own group in Toronto called CCMC, which has had a number of different people in it over the years, but it's, you know, free improvisation group. Right. It's right. from you know, the early seventies till to, to present day. I think they play once a month still. And Oh, wow. In, uh, okay. in Toronto. Yeah. Mm -hmm. you know? So it was mind blowing for me to, to find that, you know, not only had he done this sort of classic uh, experimental film, but then it turned out he was a experimental musician, as well. And so then, you know, it was difficult to find the records, but I, I probably tracked down a, a couple before I interviewed him. And then, you know, he was very graciously kind of like, you know, gave me the whatever stock he had of, uh, oh, you wow. know, his other other releases. So I saw a documentary on Michael Snow at Harvard Film Archive well over 10 years ago. Um, I don't remember the name of it, but right around that time, I saw him play a tonic and it was, I don't know oh, if you yeah. remember this, it was a Paul Haynes trip. Well, Paul was... Haynes had just passed away. I don't know if you put that oh. together or 
Um, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. But, well, but he was, was playing piano, and and I think Roswell was was there too. Um, well, it was was it CCMC because I think CCMC played with Christian. Might Tonic. have been maybe. I, I remember Michael did a solo did show. Thing. Yeah, he did yeah, a solo. he may have. I mean, yeah. we probably you know we probably kind of mixed it up a little bit, right. but um, and there's a C. I think there's a double CD of of recordings of CCMC with Christian. I think some of that was recorded at Tonic and maybe some of it was also recorded in Toronto somewhere. Interesting. And then I went on, you know, to have this trio with Michael and Akiyanda, which um, has, has played a number of times. We have one CD on uh, Victo that was oh, from, okay. uh, that was from a, a, a one, the, the Victoriaville festival. And then another show we did in Toronto with the Goethe Institute, but we played also in Europe a few times and uh, we played in New York, a few times right well actually that that brings me to my next point which is when i learned about brackage <clears throat> that's when i found out about your group with lee ronaldo text of oh, light yeah, text yeah, yeah. and and can you talk which about how- which christian was also in for oh he was in that first, too okay yeah at least for the first that. at least for the first couple of years yeah right so how did that group form did you did were you guys uh uh, uh working together and then had the idea of of of, of bringing in bracket the brackets <laughs> films or how did yeah that see once again it's like on the same day when i was i was working at tonic on the same day i got two different emails one was from urish krieger saying he was coming to town and he wanted to do a gig with me and lee and then i the same exact day i got an email from william hooker saying he wanted to do a gig with me and lee and i was just like <laughs> let's all play great. together you know yeah right. and lee was like that's a great idea but let's get christian marclay also and let's play with a Stan Brackage film. And I was like, wow, that's an amazing idea. Great. Um, and I knew the film Text of Light by Brackage, which is somewhat unusual for him because it's all light reflections off an ashtray. And it's like an hour and a half oh, wow. or close to an hour and a half. But it's like, you know, of course he never repeats it. It's like all every different kind of reflection you can imagine. It's like really pretty great. And, uh, and I wanted to use that. And that's what we used for the first, gig and that's where you know where the name came from it was like really neat i mean the the film is actually called the text of light but um yeah it was something i'd seen uh, again in college and uh that's uh that was the beginning of that yeah right wow that's such a great idea yeah i love i love brackets and that's all you know again that was sort of like the exploding plastic inevitable was like was this idea of having avant-garde film showing and then doing uh kind of avant-garde music like electric uh music improvisation with it you know it's like i mean that was such a big influence on me and and i think i talk about this in the interview with alessandra even the whole reason i started playing guitar was more from seeing this picture of a light show at a paul mccartney and wings concert than from any kind of like (laughs) sonic um inspiration it was just like this is the way to get into the light show <laughs> oh yeah right <laughs> <laughs> you know so this just you know kind uh, of like you know kind of making it be a total experience like that is is to me is really just an ideal and you know that the text of light thing really kind of realized that i mean it was controversial within the film world because some practice films for the most part were silent they weren't really supposed to have a soundtrack oh, right. et cetera, et cetera interesting you know. right uh but you know some people basically took the attitude of, well, you can always go see them 
without it's not like we're putting a soundtrack <laughs> yeah, on right. the film you know the, yeah. the prints are still there that are silent of yeah. you can always go see them and and i think what happened more was that people would see a concert with us playing with the films and then they would seek the films out to see more exactly. of them by brackage right. or you know it's just something right. that kind of like people got people turned on to it so right in the end i think it was more positive than negative right isn't there a um isn't there a criterion of the brackage films i haven't, I, I haven't yeah, seen there was it. a double right. dvd i think okay. yeah is it even, silent or, or most know? of it i'm sure is okay. i mean there, yeah. there are only a few films where i think he had a interesting kind of soundtrack to right it, yeah. right so the other thing i wanted to ask you about because we've been talking about tonic a little bit is how, that's how i met you is through is through tonic right and right. you used to be such a great programmer and i think and i i and I, this comes up in your book with with Reese with Reese Chatham because oh, yeah. he I didn't know he 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 was programming for the kitchen um, <clears throat> until I read until I read your book. But but the interesting thing in the in the um, in the book and and my experience working with you is you were like so hands on. It was like well have you like line up well think have you thought about this group over here and and you know Jesse Sparhawk plays guitar. I was like I didn't know that. Oh wow that's interesting. Mm -hmm. You know. And you never get that. Like I never get that with booking agents. Usually, it's like, oh, you know, it's they're they're so they're, they're probably so busy or what have you. But you were just such an an artist's um, sort of an artist's view on on programming. And I'm I'm just curious if you could if you could talk about that a little bit because you again, it's like I've I've worked with so many booking agents at clubs, and and the experience working with you was was just so different because you took an, an artist's perspective plus i knew your work before mm. that because i knew your work with lauren connors so when you when you first emailed oh, yeah. me back i said oh this alan's the booker wow that's interesting <laughs> and then when i would go to tonic i would see anton at the door anton fear right. i think worked the door so it was like it seemed yeah. to be all like musician run um yeah, in, some, in some ways yeah but yeah i mean I, one thing I kind of learned on the job was to try to get people to almost kind of like come up with their own bill because they were going to be splitting the money with the other person on the bill. Right. So why do it with, you know, some, you know, group or act that has nothing to do right. with you. And so I kind of encouraged people to kind of do that. And you know, rather than just being like, just kind of like shuffling a bunch of bands onto the bill who were all asked to have a gig, you know, it sort of made more sense to do it that way. I mean, the thing about tonic was, it was like the most artist respectful club imaginable, you know, it was right. really kind of like, yeah. and, and sometimes to the, <laughs> to the, at, at the expense of people working there. <laughs> yeah, right. That's uh, what I figured. But, you right. know, it was really, I mean, everyone was just really bending over backwards to make sure that the artists really had a good, uh, experience and so that's that's really kind of what made it made it special but there's no I, my impression after tonic closed with there's there, there was no place that really um replaced that because the fact that you had a bar like stone is not a, it's not a bar the fact that you had a bar means that people could just go and hang out um yeah, I mean, and yeah that was i mean the impression i got yeah um, i mean not in new york but you know i would say that cafe auto in london is to me, is oh, from okay. Tonic, and also um, uh, Instant Chavirez in uh, in Paris. You know, sure. You know, okay. it's like not in New York, but it, yeah, it, it exists. In, you know, in, in other in other countries, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, I I maybe 
maybe empty bottle and to some degree people would go and hang out there in chicago and um yeah empty bottle was I, is it still open it, it's it was still great open. yeah it's know. more of a rock club now but it, yeah it, right yeah back then it was more um, yeah avant-garde no yeah i would i would all, agree with that for yeah sure. all genres yeah which yeah. I, I like i like venues like the i mean zebulon zebulon now in la yeah. you know okay. is, is also another place that i think is has sort of developed a reputation for being right. hospitable to avant-garde as well as kind of indie rock yeah let's talk about um milford graves for a minute um uh, yeah i just went to the yeah. memorial for milford yesterday oh, wow. the artist place just great and what is what are they are they showing his um his art his artwork or this they yeah they have an or, exhibition up there now and this was this was a, a different separate event that was just you know right i think i read about that <clears throat> so i um interviewed him in oh, around oh three ah. or oh two or oh three <clears throat> first of all your your interview is fantastic it must have been one of the last Thanks. ones um uh, right. was, well i think actually uh John Corbett interviewed him like literally the next day. <laughs> oh, wow. Okay. Wow. Um, but, and that, which was more of a live talk. I mean, it was maybe for an hour. It, I mean, mine was maybe one of the last long ones. I mean, John long had also ago. interviewed him, I think for eight or nine hours, I think. Wow. Okay. Uh, yeah. Like or some years earlier. I'm not yeah. sure what, what that was, if that was for something specific or, or what it was, but yeah we i was working on this documentary on free jazz and and it's a now it's turned into a book and it's been this slow process of of transcribing it's so time consuming i mean trend, mm -hmm. you know transcribing yeah. these interviews but our interview with him was probably about two hours or something like that yeah. and so we we knew he gave us the address we went through jamaica and immediately you know what house it is because you see <laughs> all those amazing yeah, spotted a mile away yeah it's it's just it's so beautiful you know all of the sort of the the um uh the tapestry that he has in the garden out front so we he said meet us in the basement and so we he said you go through the garden so we went through the garden and there was a kid sitting there on a on a on a folding chair or something probably teenager or something and i said oh, are you waiting he said oh no it's fine um he's he's just through there and so we we go through the garden I go down into the basement and Milford's there. And I said, you know, there's a kid out there. Um, I don't know if he's, if, if you know, he's out there. He said, oh yeah, he, I know he's out there. You know, it, it, basically what he said was the kid has to stay out there for hours to show that he can get a lesson, right? That was what he told us. <laughs> so sort of like if the how kid old was can, the kid? how old was the kid? Oh, oh, maybe 16 or something. Okay. But it basically said, if he can sit out there for a few hours patiently, then that shows that he's ready for a lesson or something like that. Like, wow, <laughs> this is what we're getting into here. Um, but uh, what a what an amazing and I and I remember interviewing him, thinking somebody should do a documentary on this guy. I mean, what a personality! And they did. Yeah, you know, the fortunately playing, they the, did. Yeah, yeah they, fortunately did. they did. Yeah, which I loved. Um, but I loved the the thing that we didn't I didn't get to in in our interview, and that you and that he he talked about in yours, which I thought was so fascinating, was the whole experienced at Bennington. Yeah. So what was so interesting, what was so interesting about the, in the book was he says, you know, they, they're sort of laughing at him at first, because he comes in with all these, all these papers and everything. <clears throat> and by the end of it, um, you know, they've, they've, they have so much respect for him, because he's, he's coming out of this world that they just, um, that they have so much respect for. And I just thought, wow, you know, that, 
if you can turn kids like that around, you know, um, you know, you've got a real talent. Um, but what a what an interesting. I mean, he's such a great teacher, you know, and he's so inspirational. Yeah, I don't know about you, but I came out of that interview just so inspired. The conversation just so inspired about music, about life, about everything. Um, yeah. Well, you know, that was great. a three hour interview. Wow. And when it was done, I gave him a copy of the CD that I recorded with Michael Snow and Aki Onda. And I figured he would know Michael Snow from the ESP days because the Paul Blay record that Milford plays on the cover was by Michael Snow. Oh, and Michael was yeah. really good friends with Roswell Rudd, who right. Milford played with, you know, that was his big break in New York was playing with the New York art quartet. Right. And so I gave him the CD and he just lit up. He was so glad to see Michael, to be reminded of Michael. And, and, and Aki, as it turned out, had gone and taken photographs of Milford and Mintanaka when they were kind of doing a mini tour in Japan. And Aki was still a teenager and he just kind right. of like, he kind of lucked into this uh, assignment from a, a music magazine saying like, someone going, just go, go follow them around for a couple of days, take pictures, yeah. you know, we'll use them. Right. Uh, and he said it made a really big impression on him. And so Michael didn't really remember Aki per se, but he he certainly remembered Michael. And so then he was like, all right, so you know what time of day it is. And then he talked to me for another two hours. You know, it was much more like, you know, musician to musician. Because, right. I mean, he said that he had kind of like, he had kind of asked around and he knew that I was like a good writer. And so he was, so he was very generous with his time to begin with. And, and you know, he... um and very forthcoming. Um, but of course, you know, when the tape recorder was off, he was, he was really letting fly. <laughs> and uh, so, but it was just, you know, and just as you know, from going down to that basement, you know, just all the bric-a-brac around and like the, the I don't know if he had this when you were there, but you know, all these like computer monitors with all the heart research going on. Yeah, he had that. He had lab view, the lab view set up within the and the, the the skeleton and all that yeah, stuff. Yeah. And right. I think I say this maybe in the intro to the interview. It's just like when you walking out of there, you just realize like how like ineffectual ultimately like a record of this guy is. Exactly. You right. Know? It's yeah. like you're not right. get you're getting like you know, like, like one layer at the most of, what, of what's going on. Right. Um, even, uh, even from a performance, you know, even, you know, just, you know, it's like something that he, he was recorded relatively well, but it's just not the same as being in the same room as him when he was playing. And, you know, again, like, you know, just even as, as much as I love that documentary and, and, and it's amazing to see video footage of him. There's quite a lot of it in this, show at artist space um again it's just like you know it's like when when all you're left with is this like grainy video from <laughs> 40 years ago it's, it just is you know it's like it just it's just a real reminder of like you know how um how you really need to encounter the, these people in person in the flesh you know it's it's you know it's a lot like um you know, everyone's seen the Mona Lisa, but the Mona Lisa isn't going anywhere. <laughs> yeah, it's, right. it's, it's not mortal. It's, you know, it's, yeah. it's an object that, you know, will be around, you know, enshrined like that as long as there's a civilization to uh, uh, maintain it. Uh, but you don't get that with 
human beings. You have to, I mean, I think that's a big, that's actually, you know, now we're talking about it. I mean, that's a big, that's really what's behind this whole book is like, you realize like these guys are not going to be around forever. You really, if you want to like, if you're, if their work means something to you, then, you know, whatever you can do to like meet them and not just, you know, wave at them and say like, hi, I'm your biggest fan or something like that, but actually have an exchange with them and, and try to bring something to them or bring some understanding of their work to them that they may or may not even have themselves is really kind of uh, the goal with this stuff. I, I love the book and and I, I haven't even finished it yet. There's still it's so it's so yeah. huge. I'm I'm still trying to make way. my way through it, but um, it's such a great selection. I mean, I realize that people you know just kind of like skip around and kind of yeah, that's what don't I don't read yeah. and don't read yeah. it in order. But it is actually pretty fascinating if you read it in the order and which is oh really for the most okay. part for the most part is just chronological order. Oh, okay. When I conducted them, with you know a few exceptions, like we moved. I mean, Adris Hoyos, I think, is the actually the earliest one in there from 95, and she's second to last, cause, just because I want the juxtaposition of her with Milford, like two people who are kind of oh, free okay. drummers, you know, but it's right. coming from such a completely different right. background and uh, just, you know, just that's you know, wild. so different, but... So you sequenced it. Okay. That's interesting. Yeah. yeah you sequenced all those together. Yeah, okay. it, yeah. But primarily chronological, you know, the, the first okay. one is Greg Tate, which is a brand new interview. And I put that right. first because Greg and I are both kind of have this kind of like kind of dual identity or dual career as uh, writers and, and musicians. Uh, and he's, he's really the only person I really talked to about that uh, in the book. And certainly the only person I talked to about it. In any in any interview, I don't think I don't think I ever interviewed anybody else. Mm-hmm. You know, the only other person I probably could have thought of that, you know, I could have discussed that with would be like you know Lenny Kay or. But yeah, I, I really kind of wanted to, to. I knew Greg already, but uh, I, I, it was something that he and I never really talked about. Um, and he's yeah, another one. He's got who, the burnt sugar, and, he, and he's also yeah. a, a great writer. I saw. I think he did the music for this Basquiat this Basquiat exhibit here at MFA. 
I'm oh, pretty yeah, sure he did. He did the so the music that you when you listen when you walk in, all the Ramel Z and all that stuff that he I think he did a really good job with that. Um, yeah, no, Greg. I mean, Greg was a big influence on. Yeah, you know, his writing was a big influence on me when I was oh, encountering okay. it, like in the early '80s. I think I talk in there a little bit about you know this one article he did in Downbeat about the Electric Miles '70s stuff, which oh, which yeah. at that point people were kind of disp- still a little bit disparaging of after Bitches Brew. You know, everyone right. kind of acknowledged Bitches Brew was like a landmark album, and the stuff after that wasn't quite so regarded. And he was really kind of like sticking up for it. And right. I, I think checked he it was out one, after that. Yeah. And, you know, it was like, it's, it's my favorite. Stuff. I think he was the one who put those records on the map. They were sort of before that they were sort of lambasted. Anything yeah. after bitches brew was sort of considered, Oh, that's just, you know, fusion or, or what have you. But he was the one who sort of put those records on the map on the corner and, you know, um, all that stuff that came after. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, he's a great, great writer for sure. Yeah, yeah. I think also, I think people maybe after punk were, were could kind of relate to them a little more because a lot of them are pretty dark. <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> and they're right. pretty aggressive, really. You know, like Agarta yeah. and Pangea. Like, you know, the first side of Pangea is is like, you know, it's like it may as well be the Bad Brains. It's you know, oh it's yeah, like, right. You know, it's really it's true. It's, yeah, at least the first. Well, the first ten minutes yeah. of it maybe. <laughs> Well, it's funny because that 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 reminds me of the metal machine music, which you which you you talk about in the book. But I just read a piece. I think it was on Pitchfork or some someone wrote a whole piece about metal machine music just just recently. And he he talks about it in your book is most people think that he was just trying to get out of a record contract, but he really loved it. Right. He, he really loved that piece. I mean, yeah, it, and he it, and he'd it, recorded it a long time before 1975. He had recorded that, I think, around 70 or 71. Oh, I see. It was something he just I did in his he just something okay. he did in his loft for fun. You know, he right. had you know he had the guitars all feeding back, and then what the record is mostly him just playing around with the tape speed. You know, all that kind of stuff is just like tape. Yeah, speed it. You know, speed it up, and you know, and then multi-track. Um, so yeah, it wasn't just some stunt he pulled, you know, to get out right. of the record. I mean, you know, he probably did want to get out of the record contract, and that's why he pulled it out and said, "All right, well, let's give him here this. you go. <laughs> Here's the, you know, it's a double album, so that counts as two records on the contract, and you know, so it's you know, it's a little bit of both, right? I see. Uh, right. It wasn't something that he didn't do it just as a prank. It was something that you know he liked, and I think probably in the article, maybe not the interview, but Sterling Morrison uh, kind of remembered him blasting bagpipe records when they were both at Syracuse <laughs> University. And I think that's that I think it comes out of that kind of as much yeah, as anything else. It's totally. like, it's like yeah. his his way of it's like his version of bagpipe music, you know. 
that's that makes perfect sense yeah well i'd, I'd never i'd never heard that before that's great yeah no it's kind of amazing yeah, that's amazing well i i'd, I'd love to um I want to I want to end with one of your pieces with Lauren because I love I love those records oh, yeah. especially the live in New York City record I think is my favorite I haven't heard oh, all of them but that's actually my favorite also I love that yeah. also you know I, I should ask you before we play play this track is um you know I I have sort of a a, a love and hate relationship with free improvisation and it's sort of like you know it doesn't always work recorded you know um and the, the first question is is it free is it free improvised or did you guys talk about themes? Because it, this is one of the few sort of improvised, to, for, my, for me personally, few improvised settings that actually works start to finish. You know, it really mm -hmm. just sounds so composed and so beautiful all the way through. Yeah, it's absolutely free improvised. In fact, wow, I great. got to that gig having just come from a band practice and I got there actually a little bit late. And, um, and my head was still kind of in like band practice i wasn't thinking at, at all about what i was yeah. going to do with lauren and right. just hit the stage and it just flowed out like that but yeah i mean <laughs> the, the, you know the kind of misunderstanding about free improvisation is that it just turns into this kind of um out completely aleatory random thing and it's if you do it you know what what's to my liking is when you just do it and it comes out sounding like a composed piece right. and it can be it can be abstract or atonal too. It doesn't have to be, you know, sure, I mean, course. this is a tonal, this is basically a tonal um, piece, even though it's improvised, but um, you know, I mean, Derek Bailey sounds like Weyburn. It's like Weyburn, you know, right. Composing like live in the moment. If you listen to Weyburn and listen to Derek back to back, it's, it's like the same thing. Yeah, and that's I, what a lot I of the European, that, yeah. that's what a lot of the European improv was. It was like, well, we can do, a John Cage piece, but we don't need the open score. We can just, you know, go out there and do it because Cage is giving the performance so much latitude. It's like, what do you need to score for? You know, you can just go out there. And That's what Evan Parker it, always yeah. said yeah. was, you know, need the score because I'm writing it, you know, as I go. Yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, Evan, of course, is like a huge Coltrane fan too. And so, so much right. of what Coltrane is doing is, is that, you know, it's like every, every one of those solos is sort of like, you know, it's a composition in and of itself, even though it's just coming out of his his head. You know, as as he's playing. <laughs> right. Amazing. Um, yeah. So yeah, and I think the other thing I, I I could say about you know playing with Lauren is like that's kind of a conversation that's ongoing. I mean, when we talk about right. uh, you know being someone who's a musician who likes uh, interviewing people, it's sort of like you know, inter it wasn't it wasn't a matter of interviewing him it's like the interview would was much more um possible playing music together than it would be like having a conversation although of course i've had plenty of conversations with him and i you know i've gotten to know him fairly well over the years but um he's not a super verbal guy but and he's definitely one of these people that you know it's like you know, I'll, you know, a lot of it is, is his expression is really through music or, or other, or, other art form. You know, he's, he's actually a prize winning haiku poet. Huh, really? And he's wow. actually won prizes in Japan for his haiku wow. poetry, if you can believe huh. that. And, and he's, he's uh, actually a very great visual artist as well. It's like kind of one of the few people I can think of where the, uh, like a lot of his visual art is, is just as strong and, and kind of, kind of and, uh, just as recognizable uh, as being related to 
uh, what he does as a musician. Hmm. Um, wow. So, yeah, in fact, the, the book launch party for Common Tones, we played together because, you know, they wanted to have, um, they wanted me to do some kind of performance, I think, for it. And I, I immediately suggested doing a, a duo with Lauren because to me, that's like the, the ongoing musical conversation, you know, kind of like probably the longest lived one since it's in 2023 it'll be 30 years since our first that's what i thought together. yeah that's yeah, a yeah, long yeah. time so right it's, yeah it's very great long. great well let's 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 end with this piece because i i love the um um that's a, just a, such a great collaboration but thanks again for coming on so, so my great pleasure to talk to thanks you. for having you yeah, yeah. this is a great talk